Hello, everybody. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you are not. And this is the second day of our series on the Mass. Um, we started yesterday and walked through some of our reasonings about why we pray together this way. We talked about a lot of different things. And then we just barely started, really, walking through the Mass. Um, today, we've arrived at the part of the Mass that's, that's the Liturgy of the Word. And we're going to talk about that. Um, basically, what you want to remember is that the Mass is broken into two pieces. The liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. What's the word liturgy mean? Well, like a lot of our stuff, it's a Greek word and it kind of means the work of the people. It was a title for, uh, it was a word that was used in government service, right? Um, and it's a recognition that we are to some extent working uh, together as a community to worship God properly. Now, uh, I think there was a time in our church where we unintentionally used that word poorly uh, by pretending work of the people means that this is our job. This is about us. And it started to even get reflected in some of our songs where our music at mass began to glorify us, right? And I think we're slowly uh, coming back from that into a healthier expression of liturgy as about God, right? One of the fascinating things to think about is how often in our life, or I guess I should say how rarely, you and I are involved in something that isn't about us, yeah? Um, and this is a time where it isn't about us, and yet because of that, it benefits us. Isn't that fascinating? That goes back to what we talked about yesterday. But beyond that, beyond the word liturgy, you've also heard it called, and probably most commonly called, Mass. I am going to Mass. What's that word mean? Well, Mass is actually a kind of an unintentional butchering of Latin. Uh, whenever you think about Latin, you want to remember that there's basically two kinds of Latin. There's Church Latin, and there's Classical Latin. Classical Latin would be what the Romans spoke. Church Latin would be what evolved <laughs> into the church as people began to somewhat learn Latin, but they changed the pronunciation of a lot of things. So here's a few examples of that, okay? Uh, the guy who kind of crashed the Republic, you remember him? His name was Julius. Yeah? Did they say it, do you think? I'll bet you people said Julius yeah. Caesar, but that's not what anyone called him. They called him Julius Kaiser, right? Caesar, that's church Latin. We're actually taking a classic Latin name and pronouncing it with church Latin, okay? You've heard Julius Caesar's famous quote, Fene vidi vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. That's not how they said it. They would have said, Vene vidi vici, right? Classic Latin was the language that the Romans spoke somewhat. They spoke a lot of Greek too, a kind of Greek called Koine Greek. Church Latin is the thing that evolved as people stopped speaking Latin outside of church, right? As Latin evolved as the language of the church, we kind of started to bend it and pronounce it funny. Why am I telling you all this? Because the actual word is not mass. That's the kind of church Latin word. The word is misse, uh, misse. M-I-S-S, -S, 
AE or EA, I have to see it to tell you. And what does that mean? It means to be sent, right? So that's what's kind of cool. When you say, I'm going to mass, what you're literally saying is, I am going to be sent, because that's what we're doing. And in the new translations of the Mass that we picked up in 2011, that's a little bit clearer at the end. When the deacon dismisses us, he makes reference to the fact that now you fueled up, get out in the world and make a beautiful Mass. We want to remember that when we approach Mass, again, it's not really about us. The fact that it benefits us is a byproduct. It's about God. And what does that contact with God do? It sends us out into the world. Think of it like this. For a lot of us Catholics, and this is the tragedy to some extent, Mass is uh, like a power plant. Okay? Can you imagine? You go to uh, Consumers Powers, and they've got the plant, and they're giving you a tour, and, and they're showing you this is how we generate power, this is how much power we generate, and then you say, well, how does the power leave the plant and go where it's needed? Can you imagine if they were like, no, we don't do that. We generate enough power to keep going. Right? That would be ridiculous. But that's a lot of times how we unintentionally approach mass. Right? I'm just going there to fill me up. Well, that's only half of that. We're going there to f- let God fill us so that we can go out. Right? I am going to be sent. Okay? So those are a couple names we use for it. Uh, but we're focusing on the word liturgy because right now we're looking at the division of Mass into liturgy of the Word, liturgy of the Eucharist. And you and I are right now entering the part of Mass that is the heart of the liturgy of the Eucharist. So to remind you, I just finished the collect or the opening prayer. And now I'm sitting down and I'm going to grunt when I sit, but I turned my mic off. Just so you know, that's not part of the liturgy. That's just because I'm fat. And now let's see what happens next. Okay. Okay. Uh, Hold on just one sec, folks. We might be having a little bit of time. Okay, so now let's listen to the word. A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Okay. So now, uh, what we need to do is just take a quick look. Well, when I say quick, I don't know if I'm doing anything quick today. Well, we're going to take a look at the Bible. Okay, The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is much more substantial pages-wise than the New Testament. And one of the things I'll encourage you to do is to get a good Bible. Um, it will help you understand so much so much better because when they present these readings to you at mass they expect that you have a lot of knowledge that you might not so for example when you hear a reading from the prophet jeremiah you might not know anything about when jeremiah lived what was going on right because when we talk about the old testament we're talking about a little over two thousand years of human history and a lot happened in that two thousand years as you can imagine if this helps you think about this the united states has only been a country for about 300 years and think of all that we've gone through think of that all that would be involved with our story now imagine a little more than two thousand years what would be involved 
So Jeremiah has a historical context. And when we look at the Old Testament, to me, this is one of our best Old Testament resources. This is called the Catholic Study Bible. To me, you need two Bibles, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But the reason this one is because it has an Old Testament, and that's huge to us. It helps a lot. And what you got to know about the Old Testament is, for the most part, it's not written in chronological order, right? Think of the Bible not as a book as much as a library of books. So you take the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that's one section of the Old Testament, and it kind of goes in order. Right? It tells you a story. Sometimes it tells you the same story a few times from different perspectives. But either way, it's telling you a chronological story. But then once you pass that, uh, it's not really chronological anymore. So, for example, I'm going to open this up to this one page here that I've marked. And it breaks down the Bible for you in the way it was intended. So, well, I won't hold it up for you. But first you have the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Pentateuch, five books, okay? Just think of pentagram. Well, don't think of pentagrams. Torah means the law, okay? And that's the primary focus of those first five books, is to give you the law. Then the next thing you run into is what's called the Deuteronomic history and the, chrono and the chronicler's history. So these are a section in the books that are history books. Okay? <clears throat> and they're all grouped together. What's next after that is, we say, the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs. They're not telling you a story. They're offering you wisdom. They're offering you pithy sayings or beautiful prayers of sorrow or joy or pain. And then you get to the major prophets, which includes Jeremiah. Now, the time Jeremiah is preaching about, it's, it's, it's at the same time as the chronicler's history. Right? But instead of infusing Jeremiah all through the chronicler's history, they group him with all the section of major prophets. Who are the major prophets? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. And why are they major? Because they were promoted. Okay, I made that up. I'm going to be totally honest with you. They were not in the military. Um, after that, you get Daniel and the minor prophets. After that, we move into the New Testament. So why am I telling you all this? Jeremiah has a context. He's called the prophet of woe, W-O-E, meaning the prophet of sorrow. He was preaching to Israel at a time when things were very dark. People had abandoned the faith. And so often his message is very sorrowful. You take a look at Ezekiel. What if you hear the prophet Ezekiel? Well, then there's something very specific you need to know. Ezekiel was a prophet during a time in Israel's history when they had been conquered and torn away from their land and spread all over the Babylonian Empire. So Ezekiel was a guy who was talking to Jews and trying to give them hope for the future. Someday we'll get back to Israel. Every prophet, every book has a story to tell you. And it's really good to try to know some sense. It's not as hard as you think. It really isn't. There's only about five to ten events you should know so that when you hear the Old Testament, you know what time we're talking about. 
So with that understanding, let's take a look at Jeremiah. Okay, let's hear what he's got to say to us. Woe to the shepherds who mislead and scatter the flock of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, against the shepherds who shepherd my people. You have scattered my sheep and driven them away. You have not cared for them, but I will take care to punish your evil deeds. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands to which I have driven them and bring them back to their meadow. There they shall increase and multiply. I will appoint shepherds for them who will shepherd them so that they need no longer fear and tremble and none shall be missing, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous shoot to David. As king, he shall reign and govern wisely. Okay. So, Jeremiah, the prophet of woe, right? And what's the first word? Woe to my shepherds. Why would God use the idea of shepherd, do you think? Like for you and I, 2,000, well, wow, 3,000 years later, living how we live, that might be a little tough for us. But make no mistake, for these guys, that made a ton of sense. It was a great image. Most of them, if they got meat, it was sheep. Most of them, if they had garments, it came from sheep. Right? This was this was God using an image they would understand to reveal the truth about himself and about their religious leaders. That their religious leaders clearly were bullies. Their religious leaders clearly weren't taking care of them, but were wounding them and sheep were getting lost. These are all images people would have understood. And in that culture, there were good shepherds and there were bad shepherds. What was God's point in the end? If you won't do it, I will. I'll be your shepherd. And while he's being their shepherd, what does he promise them? One day, I'm going to raise up a good shepherd. And of course, for us, this is our hint at Jesus. It's, excuse me, it's a fascinating thing. And Jeremiah, um, the same thing happened to him that happens to most people who tell society the truth. They bumped him off. Right? They threw Jeremiah down a well to die. They just didn't want to hear it anymore. Um, There's so much we can learn. And again, I'm not going to try to teach us all of it because I don't have time. And I think you might get bored. But the key is this. I can't urge you strong enough to just pick a prophet. Right? Pick one and learn five things about them. So that when you hear that prophet's name, you know what's going on. There's a lot here, but we'll move on, okay? So once he finishes, we'll skip ahead. Uh, We just had a reading from the Old Testament, and the general pattern is this. Ready? Old Testament reading, a psalm that is sung or chanted, a New Testament reading, and then the gospel. 
That's the normal pattern for a Sunday Mass. Not always. Sometimes you get two New Testament readings, right, with a psalm in between. But the thing that doesn't change is a reading, uh, two readings with a psalm in the middle, and then the gospel. Why the psalms? There's 150 of those puppies, right? And they're powerful. They are the prayers of righteous people through the ages. People crying out to the Lord or people rejoicing in the Lord. It really captures what you and I experience. And as humans, so for example, well, here, let's see what Psalm they're doing, okay? So now you'll see a cantor come up. They'll sing a line of the Psalm. I assume then he or she will stick out their hands uh, for us to sing it with them. I won't do that to you. <laughs> I would never do that to you, okay? Oh, and this is a good cantor, holy cow. Do you see who this is, guys? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're blessed. Oh, Psalm 23. Um, again, another shepherd psalm. So this is the key, right? There's a connection between all the readings, a thread. Shepherd me, O oh God, beyond my wants, beyond my fears, from death into life. Shepherd me, O oh God, beyond turn my it down a little. wants, uh, beyond my fears, from death. So what she's doing now is she's taking the words of the psalm and someone has put them to music. So we're not chanting this one, but we are singing it. Okay? And what we hear here is a contrast to the first reading. Uh, the first reading talks about bad shepherds. This psalm talks about good shepherds, the good shepherd, namely our Lord. And what you usually find at a Sunday Mass is that the first reading is always connected to the gospel. And you'll also find that the collect or the opening prayer tells you the way you, they want you to connect them. It's really fascinating, right? None of these prayers are random. None of these readings are random. This pattern of readings that we do, this has been set for thousand, more than a thousand years, right? And what they do, well, I won't bore you, but uh, just know this, that that connection between the psalm and the first reading, that's pretty normal. And it's also connected to the prayers you'll hear the priest pray. Okay. So we'll skip through the psalm. Is that all right? Okay. So now we're going to have a reading from the New Testament. What is the New Testament? Well, it's the second part of the Bible, and it's much, much, much shorter than the first. 75% of it was written by St. Paul. The New Testament, you can break down into a couple groups, okay? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then we say the Epistles, right? Which are the letters to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Any time that one of our saints wrote a letter to a community of people, we call those Epistles, letters of the Apostles. And then you've got the part that are called the Catholic epistles. And by Catholic, they don't mean Roman Catholic like us. They're using the Greek word, meaning universal. So what would be a Catholic letter? James. Why do we say a Catholic letter? Because he didn't write it to a specific person. He wrote it to everybody, right? So what's it just called? The letter of James. Not to Timothy, not to the Galatians. It's just James's letter that he wrote. And then after that, you get into the apocryphal, uh, namely 
um, revelation. <clears throat> so let's see where this New Testament reading is from. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians. Christ okay. Jesus, you once far so when we talk about the Ephesians, that's St. Paul writing to people in a town called Ephesus. Okay. And Ephesus was a city in the Roman Empire. And if you want, you can look it up, find out, or you can just read the thing and see that Paul is specifically writing to a community of people about their specific problems or their specific needs. Now, for this, I cannot recommend this Bible enough. Okay, can you see it? It's the Ignatian Catholic Study Bible, okay, and it's the second edition. I cannot recommend this enough, that if you decide I'm only getting one, get this one. Okay, this is to me by far one of the best Bibles with commentaries. What I'll do is I'll open to Ephesians, and by the way, if you want a little trick, Remember, GE Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Yeah, okay. So let's get over to Ephesus and see what the heck was going on, okay? So when we get to the Catholic Study Bible and we go to the book of Ephesians, uh, I don't know how well you can see this, but the top three fingers are the scripture. That's it. This is all commentary. It's explaining it all to you. And it is marvelous. I cannot tell you how much this will help you. Okay. <clears throat> you can find out why Paul was writing what he was. You can find out where Ephesus was and what was going on there. You can find out all kinds of crazy stuff. What is this phenomenon of letters? Right? What were people doing? This is how people communicated back then. Um, you wrote a letter and you cycled it in cyclical, right? Um, you cycled it through the community. You passed it around. Okay? Were there other letters Paul wrote that weren't in the Bible? Oh yeah. Were there letters other apostles wrote that weren't in the, aren't in the Bible? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Why? Well, some of them got lost. Christianity was illegal for a long time, and the Romans burned a lot of our stuff. Um, you know, I won't get into the whole thing of how they pick the books they pick, okay? But what you've got here, when you hear the New Testament, is about the first 70 to 80 years of Christianity. Christians trying to figure out, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we live? Okay. our peace. He who made both both one and broke down the dividing wall of enmity through his flesh, abolishing the law with its commandments and legal claims, that he might create in himself one new person in place of two, thus establishing peace, and might reckon... Okay. See how he says the law? Paul writes about the law a lot. And what it's referring to are the 600 and some plus laws and rules that came from the Ten Commandments. So for example, God said in one of the commandments, honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land I have given you. Right? That's one of the commandments. Well, so people accepted it, but then they did what humans always, 
always do. They tried to find the exception, right? Or they asked questions that honestly didn't need to be asked to some extent. Well, what if my parents are abusive and neglectful? Okay, do I still have to honor them? What do you think? Right? But what people kept doing is asking questions and each question resulted in an answer. And each answer started to take people further and further from the intent of the commandment. Until, and Jesus points this out in one of the Gospels. That commandment, get this, that says, Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land I have given you. By the time 2,000 years had passed, ready for this? A son could say to his mom and dad, quote, Everything you have given me is korban, meaning dedicated to the Lord. And then he can abandon them. And you think, oh, that's bad. No, that's more than bad. Because that would mean his mom and dad had no means to feed themselves. There was no retirement plans. There was no 401k, right? There was none of that. You worked to get the money to eat that day. And when a son says to his mom and dad, everything you give, you've given me belongs to the Lord, is dedicated to the Lord, and walks away, he has doomed them to death. How did you get from honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land I've given you to everything you can give me, you've given me as Korban? Well, 2,000 years of questions. 2,000 years of people trying to be clever. 2,000 years of people trying to find the exception. Okay? So Paul saw in this a trap, and he was right. Right? Paul's obedience to the law led him to be a hateful, arrogant man. He killed people for righteousness sake. Here's what he found. When you have the law, when you or I reduce faith to, I obey these commands, what ends up happening is we can do it on willpower. You can keep the Ten Commandments basically on willpower. You don't need God for it. And so what ends up happening is you end up keeping all these laws but nothing inside of you has changed. All that's changed is your behavior. And what if it isn't specifically mentioned in the commandment? Does that mean I can do it? Well, sure. Paul found that either you disobey the law and you are cursed and separated from God, or you obey the law and turn into an insufferable, arrogant person. And in the end, Jesus set him free. That for you and I, we obey God because he loves us. And because he deserves that and because it's right and we don't try to find loopholes and we don't leave our brain at the door and we don't in a sense and there's a better way to put this okay but we don't require clarification for every situation we can follow the spirit when the law doesn't specifically address it okay. jesus is what saves us that's the key you and i cannot get to heaven without jesus we can't earn it um, that for us, as Jesus pointed out in the Beatitudes, it's our poverty. It's our spiritual poverty, not our righteousness, that appeals to God's heart. Okay? And all through Paul's writings, this is what he's trying to convince Jews of. Right? The law has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Act like Jesus and you obey the law. And peace to those who are near. So, oh, I see. So now I went ahead too far. Let's back up. So see what I'm doing there? 
uh, see how my hand is on the deacon? I'm saying a prayer over him. Uh, and it's uh, something like, I don't have the book in front of me, sorry. May the word of God be on your heart, on your mind, and on your lips, that you may proclaim him with love and power. And then I give him the blessing. Okay. And then he's going to walk over. We love us some processions, right? So he's going to walk over after I bless him. And then I pat him on the arm and I say, go get him. That's what I do. So you're going to see, he's going to pick up the book of the gospels. And basically what's happened here is kind of an evolution of convenience. Traditionally, the deacon or the priest would process with the book, okay? Uh, like, process. Uh, but instead, we just make a short trip, okay? Here's what he says. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Okay, so four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each was written for an entirely different audience. That's really important to know. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, whenever you hear Mark, know this. It's probably going to be short. Mark wasted no words. And he wrote his Gospel in a kind of Greek that soldiers would have associated with. Um, and so what does Mark then emphasize, if I may, the soldier-like qualities of Christ? The fact that he had a mission and nothing was going to stop him. He didn't say a lot in Mark. He does a lot in Mark. And in Mark, uh, this great line where it says, Jesus turned toward Jerusalem and set his face like stone or set his face like flint. This idea that he knew he was going there to be killed and nothing was going to stop him. Okay, so let's take a look at what Mark, oh, and you see how the deacon does this? We're praying that the word of God be on our mind. That's the sign of the cross on our head will be on our lips, that's the sign of the cross on our lips, and in our heart, that's the sign of the cross on our heart. We want that word of God to soak in our bodies and change us, okay? May the word of God be on my mind, on my lips, and in my heart, amen. <clears throat> the apostles gathered together with Jesus, reported all they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. People were coming and going in great numbers and had no opportunity to even eat. So they went off in a boat by themselves to a deserted place. People saw them leaving and many came to know about it. They hastened there on foot from all the towns and arrived at the place before them. When he disembarked and saw the vast crowd, his heart was moved with pity for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, a couple things. First of all, that's Deacon Denny, and I'm goofy for him. I, he is a holy and selfless man. And one thing I'll invite you to remember is for most people, maybe 90% of your parish, I'm making this number up, I don't know what the actual number is, their only contact with clergy is mass. 
and it can give you a skewed perspective of someone. So for example, I'm a pretty good preacher. I work hard at it. I like to preach. I think I'm good at it. People tell me I am, but that's all I am. That's all you know. It doesn't mean I'm good at anything else. Think about it, right? It's like uh, Aristotle, or no, 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 what's his butt? Socrates wrote about this in his, uh, in the defense, okay? Uh, the Apologia. Do I have the right guy? Yes. Where he talked about like a guy who cuts your hair. If he's good at cutting your hair, you ask him for advice on everything. And that baffled him. Why? All he can do is cut hair, right? When you see a deacon or a priest praying mass, try not to draw too many judgments about them from what you see. Talk, like, so I don't know how many, I mean, once people meet Deacon Denny, they know he's a treasure. But I'm always surprised that they don't pick that up. Like, oh, he's, he's that nice deacon. He's more than nice. He's extraordinary. He really is. Uh, deacon Dan has just a heart for people. Uh, so try to get to know our deacons, hey? Try to get to know Father Lay. Try to get to know our deacons. Don't try to get to know me. I hate humans. <laughs> what? Am I not supposed to say that? No, I like people. I'm kidding. Seriously, remember that. So I had priests when I was a kid. I, we had one priest who was an outstanding preacher, and he was cruel. Outside of Mass, he was a control freak. We had a priest who I was growing up was a horrible homeless, and he was a saint. He loved us, right? Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. You just never know. But anyway, uh, I just wanted you to know that about Deacon Denny. He's basically God's twin. So there's a few things in that gospel that I would love for you to know, but I'm not going to tell you, right? Seriously. But you notice how it started? The disciples returned. Well, what did they return from? That's something you might want to know because it's kind of important to the story, okay? It really is. There is a context to every scripture and we should try to know a little of it. An easy way for you and I to deal with this, truly, is to simply, um, this is what I do. So Sunday's mass finishes, my last mass. The first thing I try to do is go and look at the readings for next week. What are the readings for next Sunday? And you can do this. My mom and dad did this with us kids, and we hated it. But I'm so glad they did it, right? Because we were kids. What do you want? So on Monday, we heard the first reading for next Sunday's Mass. On Tuesday, we heard the psalm. They would read us the psalm mm -hmm. for next Sunday's Mass. Wednesday, the second reading. Thursday, the gospel. That was smart of them. It really was. And it wasn't actually rare that me, and I wasn't like some super spiritual kid or anything, but it actually wasn't rare that they'd get up to read. I'd know the reading and I'd know the context because mom and dad would tell us or we would have a Bible similar to this. And I can't tell you how much it helped. It'll actually help your kids because otherwise all they're hearing is disciples got back from something and Jesus said something and then they did something. Well, what happened before that? What's going to happen next? Those are all important questions, okay? You'll see next Sunday, like this was just this last Sunday, right? Oddly enough. Yeah, did you notice that? Next Sunday, it picks up right here. It picks right up here. So <clears throat> often you'll get into these patterns. Okay, so I think I'm talking too much. Uh, after this is the homily, and I really never know what to say about that. Okay. Some priests work hard at it. Some priests don't. Some priests spray and pray, right? Just get up and yammer away forever. And some priests get up like we had a priest um, 
at seminary who did a two-minute homily every day. And that's hard. And when I say two minutes, I'm not kidding. And he, in that two minutes, could punch you directly in the face. Uh, and that's hard. The longer the homily, probably the less the priest worked on it. Right? Uh, you know that quote from Mark Twain? where he wrote his nephew, I think it was a letter, and he said, I don't have time to write you a short letter, so this will be a long one, right? Because a short letter takes work. You gotta stop, you gotta think, you gotta work. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. I find homilies are the same. I do. Um, to me, this is the part of the mass where the priest takes the readings and teaches you what this means about God and then how you and I can respond. It's kind of that simple. Um, what does this reading tell us about God? And what do I do with that information, in a sense? A transformative moment for me was when a professor had us do at seminary. It was actually, he's a bishop now, I think. I think he's, anyway, Bishop Quinn. And he was teaching us Trinity. And he had each of us in the first few weeks of the class find a model of Trinity and get up and explain it to the class. So we all did it. And when we were done, he wrote on the board in huge letters. Ready for David to tell you this, right? So what? That's what he wrote. So now you know about the Trinity. So what? And it was such a jarring moment for me as I realized I could, before that class, could have basically given you the basics of the Trinity. But his point was simple. The devil believes in the Trinity. What is it going to do to you now? What are you going to do with this information? And that's basically how I approach every homily. I try to. What does this tell us? And what do we do with that information? How can that change us? Okay. Otherwise, I do think, and, and priests, I know it's easy for us to fall into this trap. Priests get addicted to insight. And it's a thing that people will reward. And what, what do I mean by that? A priest can get up and tell you something very cool. And I, that's always hard for me. I love history. Today, today's homily at Daily Mass, I wanted to go on and on. And I'm not kidding. I had to stop myself when I was running through the homily in my head because it was a Daily Mass Sunday so I, homily, so I didn't write it down, right? And I had to stop myself over and over from the historical context for no other reason than that's cool. And it is. It's cool to know the historical context. But it wouldn't have given them anything that will help them live that day more holy. Right? And we get addicted to those ones where, wow, but if it never moves past that, I've made it about me, even unintentionally. Or I've made it about the information, even unintentionally, with the best of intentions. And it's easy to fall into. It really is. If your priest is a bad homilist, and there's more of those than not, I get it. And I'm so sorry. Pray for him. He probably knows it too. And it bums him out. Um, I know priests who, okay, for me, it's after Mass, okay? When we approach the end of Mass, I, I start to feel panic because I know there will be a lot of people around me after Mass, and they all want something, right? And I want to help, but I can only, I'm limited, and you all get that, okay? This is my problem, not yours. Well, some of you. Um, but for the most part, it's my problem. Okay. So what do I have? I have anxiety about after mass. Okay. Some priests, that's the homily for them. 
You're bored stiff and they're terrified, right? And most priests learn to act, right? We learn to present to you. We learn to act like we wish we felt, right? So you might not say, pray for your priests, okay? Pray for his broken heart. I can't tell you how many priests write me and tell me, I know I'm a terrible homeless. I don't know what to do, right? Now, a good homily is only a good homily. It doesn't mean a good priest. A bad homily is only a bad homily. It doesn't mean a bad priest. One of my buddies called me and they got assigned a new pastor. And the pastor before them was super charismatic, ridiculously holy, a great priest. Like guy, I consider one of our better pastors. And the guy they were getting after him is a priest I just love. And here's what I told my buddy when he called. I said, the first year, you're going to be bummed. And then the second year, you're going to realize this is a good man. And then the third year, you'll be ready to die for him. Right? He has uh, something our American society doesn't know how to treasure. He's an introvert. That's all. He's an introvert. And there's so few introverts in our culture, particularly in the priesthood, that they always get the short end of the stick. Um, and I don't mean to be funny, but within a year, my buddy called was like, oh, I see it. It's just a holy, kind, diligent, thoughtful priest. Is he wildly charismatic? No. <laughs> Is he exciting? Uh-uh. Not, no. Mm-mm. No. But all that means is you got to wait a little bit to see the beauty. Right? Buried treasure is still treasure. Yeah. <clears throat> if you have bad homilies, overly long homilies, uh, heretical homilies, oh, God, I've heard those. Uh, I'm sorry. Hang in there. Pray for your priest. Pray for the victims of bad preaching. Did I tell you about that one priest who said every letter and every word? Did I ever tell you this? Let us look at today's gospel. And about the third mass with him, I was thinking, I was asking God to kill him or me. I didn't even care. I was like, just pick one, Lord. We had a priest who would do this thing where he, I'm skipping through the homily because I don't want to hear me. I don't even, okay. Look at how pretty I am. Can they see this picture of me? Look at my delicate flowing locks of hair. Do you see it? I don't either. What you can't see is the chiseled abs either because of the vestments. Um, holy cow, how long did I go? Actually, I know it was 13 minutes, which is longer than I like to go. But you know what? It was a pretty good homily. <laughs> so what happens after the homily? We do the Apostles' Creed. Okay, now you can do the Nicene Creed or you can do the Apostles' Creed. I always pick the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because it's the Rosary Creed. It is. And I know that sounds funny, but a lot of people are grateful. Because when you pray your rosary every day, you pray the Apostles' Creed. And then when we do the Nicene one, it gets all mashed up together. And, and it gets confusing. And then the other thing, this has happened twice to me since the new translations in 2011. There's a point where the whole congregation, get this, can slide into the Gloria. I've seen it twice. And you don't mean it. You're saying this thing you say, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're, we're saying the Gloria. What the hey happened? And the angels in heaven are going, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? So why do we say the creed? 
credo, right? That's the word uh, in Latin, and it's uh, I give my heart. So it's a little more than I believe in God. It's because the devil believes in God better than you. It's an idea of your belief translating into submission. And what are these creeds? Creeds were the way that Christian communities passed on what Christian is. Okay? When Christianity became kind of legal in 314 AD, one of the first things that happened is the Christians emerged from hiding and began talking to each other. And what they found is, for the most part, they agreed. But they did find a couple issues where they didn't agree. And Christians began then doing something they've been doing for 2,000 years, fighting, right? Arguing with each other, yelling at each other, heretic, liberal, modernist. People are crazy. So what happened? In the end, the bishops all converged in a place called Nicaea, N-I-C-E-A, and they defined Christianity. How? Well, what did the apostles teach us? If it wasn't written in the first one or 200 years, they gave it no, no, no creed, no, no, um, credence, credence. Okay. <laughs> and think of the creed as an upside down triangle. You start with the most general thing. What do we believe in? God. How many? One. Who is he? The father almighty. Now that alone was noteworthy about Christianity. Most religions, God was well, that's not true. The male-female split on gods in the pagan world was about 50-50. Okay? Um, for us to talk about God as father is really unique. I don't think any religion before this did that. Okay? I could be wrong, but I kind of doubt it. Okay? <clears throat> it's not something <clears throat> Jews or Muslims, for the most part, are comfortable with at all. Right. Excuse me. The idea of Jesus referring to God as his father. Hold on, folks. But then not only that, but making God our father who art in heaven. I'm going to make up a prayer. So the creed takes the most general thing and then it just starts working down until you get to the end where we're just flat out saying different doctrines of the faith. Right. I believe in uh one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. Oh, I'm saying the wrong creed. I'm not bright. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Okay. So uh, these are, that's how a creed works. And why are we saying it? We're kind of proclaiming our unity. Um, we're celebrating the unity that is not human. It's divine. Right? It's a divine unity. Humans couldn't pull this off. Okay? And that's important for us to do. Um, whether the priest does the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed truly doesn't matter. Um, again, I told you why I picked the Apostles' Creed. I'm a big fan. Um, how are we doing for time? About 10 more minutes. Okay, great. Uh, so what I'll use this last 10 minutes for... Oh, no, we got one more thing to go Father after the Creed. All from right. there he will come to... Let us pray to the Lord. Okay, so now we get the to the general intercessions. Life everlasting. Amen. Amen. See how I prophesied. So once the creed is done, then we offer our prayers to the Lord. It's a general rule. 
the petition should offer, should follow a kind of formula, okay, where you pray for uh, the needs of the world, the needs of the community, you pray for the holy souls in purgatory, you pray for particular needs for whoever the mass is offered, this kind of thing. Uh, I'm a big fan of simplistic. Have you ever been to the a mass where they do kind of a preaching petition? Those drive me nuts, right? We pray that all people will know and understand the beauty of creation and all that. And it's like, oh, sweet, fancy Moses, right? I just gave a homily, right? And why are we telling God what we're praying for? I've been to those kind of churches, right? Where they say, you know, we pray for Mary Sue, who is in Genesis room 320 with a heart condition. And you can picture a guy going, Wait, Genesis? I thought she was in McLaren. What the hey? Right? We don't pray to give God information. We pray to surrender it to God. Okay? We are free will creatures. God knows what we need. But he needs us to speak it so we can surrender that need to him. We're not directing God. We are inviting God. Come into these things. We try to be cognizant of the needs of the world. Why? Because particularly Americans, and I'm not ripping on us, I like us, and I hate this whole Americans are awful and blah, blah. I hate that. We're good people. Um, but we do need to remember we're less than 5% of the world's Catholics. I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get that into American Catholics' head. We represent a tiny fraction of the world's Catholics. Again, I think I said this before, but think of it this way. Catholicism is illegal in China, and there are more Catholics in China than here. And we're the number one religion in this country, Catholics. Okay, That's how few we are in the grand scheme of things. So you'll see this a lot. People, oh, uh, Catholic church is dying. No one's going to church. Here, sure, because we're rich, right? Rich people don't go to church as a general rule. Pop on over to Africa, see how they're doing. Pop on over to China, church is not dying. It's dying here. And it's not dying because of the church, it's dying because of us, right? If, if we raise our kid, right, from the time they're this little, and soccer practice is infallible, it can never be missed, but you can blow off mass, they learn that lesson really well, right? My mom always said this, I, this blew me away. She said, kids are the world's best observers and worst interpreters. <laughs> they learn what we teach them. Okay. And not only that, but of course, the abject failure of the church in the U.S. has not helped. Right? As a priest, I just wrote this yesterday. I feel like we can't go three days without reading about scandal. And it's starting to crush me. Right? It's just, you start getting this thing like, what? How hard is this to fix? Right? I get it. But we want to be careful. We pray for the needs of the world because the church is so much bigger than little USA with 5% of the world's Catholic population. Five. Five. So we offer huge uh, prayers like right now, good thing to pray for. This is what? Is this July? And is this 2021? July 2021, uh, Catholics in Nigeria are being slaughtered, right? Hundreds of churches destroyed, hundreds of Catholics being mutilated, tortured, abducted, killed. We should pray for them.
kind of beats our little war on Christmas, doesn't it? Sorry, did I just roll my eyes? We pray for the needs of the world. We pray for our needs of our country. We're the wealthiest country in the history of the world and we have people dying of hunger. That's odd. We should be praying. We're the wealthiest country in the history of the world and we are actually aborting babies so they, they don't have to be born poor. That's messed up. And I think I told you this, I was at a church my first weekend there, they prayed, we pray for God's justice in the US. And I'm like, oh my gosh, never pray for that. God's justice gets us hell, right? After what we've done as a country. <clears throat> uh, no, let's go for God's mercy. Let's pray that we are just. <laughs> but God, why don't you focus on mercy? We'll do this. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Okay, I think that's funny. I think five petitions personally is enough. I know, you know, sometimes there's 40. <laughs> Have you been to one of those masses? Did I ever tell you the Lord hear us prayer? Did I ever tell you this story? No. My sister was at a mass and they did that thing where instead of let us pray to the Lord, Lord, hear our prayer. There's a time where a church, American Catholics got a case of the clevers and we kept trying to fix it, right? So today we will respond, Lord, how you doing? Right? You know, and this, right, instead of Lord, hear our prayer, they changed it every week just to keep us on our toes or something. And what was it? It was Lord, hear us. Please respond to the following, Lord, hear us. Now, why did they do that? Because they hate everything. So <laughs> there was a guy who either didn't hear or didn't care. So the whole petition time was, we pray to the Lord and the whole congregation, Lord, hear us, prayer. <laughs> there was a guy who would just get the word. So he was saying, Lord, hear our prayer. And everyone, Lord, hear us, prayer. Isn't that great? To this day, we joke about that. And perhaps it's time to talk about praying in rhythm, should we? Or no? No? It's important. It is. It's communal prayer. Do you know what I mean by praying in rhythm? Right? When the whole congregation, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you got that one guy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know that guy? Yeah. You're probably going to hell for that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you definitely. No, one of the things you want to do, and I get it. I'm, I'm basically deaf without my hearing aids. I get it. Uh, but you should try to pray in rhythm. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. It's like, oh my gosh, stop it. I'm an ADHD priest, right? You know what that means? That means every time you do it, I have a five minutes dialogue in my head going, why is he doing that? What is, what's, can he not hear and then I'm not focused on what I'm doing. And then I start making mistakes. Then I start thinking, you know, I wouldn't have made that mistake if that person didn't pray in rhythm. Does this throw you? Lord, hear us. Prayer. I think that's the best. It's awesome. So I kind of, I loosened it up here a little at the end. I'm not sorry, but I'm sorry. Whatever I'm supposed to say. So hopefully that, that gets us through the liturgy of the word. Okay. And next time we sit down, which is tomorrow, we're going to look at um, my favorite part, which is the presentation of gifts. Isn't that weird? And I'll tell you why that's my favorite part, because it's packed with meaning and we'll get there. Okay. But in the meantime, I feel like I messed around a little more on this one. I hope it was still okay. But uh, if not, we'll refilm it and you won't know. Lord, hear us. Prayer. <laughs>
Right. So, <laughs> but do, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. Hold on. That's my guardian angel punching me in the throat and telling me to knock it off. What we'll do is to get together tomorrow and we're going to start on the Liturgy of the Eucharist. I think it'll take me probably two more shows to finish because I'm going to get all emotional. Right? We're getting to the hot part for me. I mean, it's all smoking. But this is sweet. Okay, and this is so much deeper and richer than you were ever taught. If you want to read a great book on what we're talking about here today, read the book, The Lamb's Supper by Dr. Scott Hahn. In my opinion, one of the best books I've ever read about the mass. I can't recommend it enough. I think it's called The Lamb's Supper or The Supper of the Lamb or Lamb Tastes Good for Supper, something like this. But <laughs> I'm sorry. It's been a long morning. Okay, so I will see you beautiful people tomorrow, and we will talk about the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Let's wrap this up with prayer, huh? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, your word is living and effective, and we are so grateful that we don't have to guess how you think what you do, it's all there in the Bible for us. And I can't believe we get to read it and to hear it. We ask you to fill our hearts with gratitude for your word and to help us to choose to really get after scripture so that we can know you better and so that we can enter more fully into the mass. For all the ways we've taken the ridiculously beautiful gift of the Mass for granted, we're so sorry. Help us do better. Help us not get discouraged by bad preaching or by our wandering minds, but to simply stay in, to stay in the celebration, in the liturgy, in the Mass. For all the things we worry about, for all the people that we fret about, oh Lord Jesus, we give them to you now. And we love you. And we trust you. And may the blessings of Almighty God be with you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you beautiful people, I'll see you tomorrow when we talk about the liturgy of the Eucharist. Peace. Is it over? No, it's never over.